Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, and welcome to What Future? I'm your host, Joshua Topolsky. Well, I'm back. I haven't been around for a little while. I got to tell you, the listener, I got to confide in you that um, I have been dealing with some family business. My family is, of course, uh, in the mafia. And no, my dad broke his hip and I had to go to Pittsburgh and, and help him out for a little bit. And during that period... I had to walk away from all of my many, many projects, including <laughs> including this podcast, which is very hard. Uh, and I barely looked at the internet. I barely read the news. I did watch a lot of nightly news in Pittsburgh, uh, which is where my parents live, and, and they love watching the news. They put it on at like four o'clock, because apparently there's just news, not CNN, but like local news. You can start watching it, I don't know, four in the afternoon. They would put on the news at four, and then it would just be on until... 10 or later and it was really just all about local stuff happening so i learned a lot about the many uh homicides that took place in pittsburgh while i was there and i wasn't responsible for any of them for the record but uh anyhow but i'm back and it's so good it's so good to be back because i really have missed rambling like this i haven't been able to ramble to anybody my parents when we're around they do most of the rambling so you know it's a very different environment for me anyhow we have a great show today. I'm very excited. I have to say, I have been excited to have this conversation. We had to move it a bunch of times, uh, which of course pained me 
uh, emotionally. Uh, but uh, we have an amazing guest today, Philip Bump, who is a national columnist for the Washington Post. He also has a newsletter called How to Read This Chart. He's kind of a data genius, and he has written a book called The Aftermath about the baby boomers and what they've done to America. So let's not waste one minute. Let's get right into it and talk to Philip. I want to tell the listener that Philip has been instructed to sit as uh, still as possible because his mic is picking up uh, some noises in the room, some fabric noises from his shirt moving. That's right. Or the many flags in the background. We're not sure what it is. It's something. Yeah. You know, if you end up seeing any video from this and you, you're thinking, why is Philip sitting so still? It's just in service of the audio quality. Right. So thank you for coming on the show, first off. Of course. I know you're running around because you've got a new book and you've got to talk to a lot of people. I do appreciate you taking the time. Of course. But before we get into the conversation that I would like to have with you, can we talk about how much sleep you had last night? Uh, uh, sure. Do you know how many hours you got? Uh, actually, yeah, last night was unusual because I took the my kids into the city and we spent all day in the city, took the train in and, you know, it was, it was an excursion like which we haven't usually had. We have a three-year-old who usually naps and so... We all were very worn out. Mm. So I got more than usual last night, which is probably about seven hours. Seven hours is a, not even what they recommend. That's still a short night. Yeah, I know. What time do you usually go to sleep? 12, 1230. Okay, so you're kind of a night owl. A lot of parents go to bed very early. I, of course, you're a news person, so that might have something to do with mm. your sleeping habits. But I stay up very late and wake up very early, and I think it's terribly unhealthy. What time do you usually wake up? Quarter to seven. We're on a sort of similar schedule, though you're probably getting a little bit mm. more sleep than me because... You seem, I don't know, better adjusted. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Well, you know, we also have the occasional kid having a nightmare or a dog howling at coyotes and right. things along those lines. Right. So. Do you have a lot of coyotes around your house? We seem to. The dog, the dog picks them up. Yeah. I can understand people being very uh, upset about that sound. Or a dog. Our dog starts, starts barking as well. So you're a columnist at the Washington Post. A lot of your stuff is, is data-based. Right. And you've been doing this for a long time. You tell stories through data very often or, or help to sort of break down stories using data or correct people for misunderstanding data. Actually, I see you do this a lot on Twitter, or I feel like I see you do this a lot where you sort of try to explain something to people that seems to have been misinterpreted. I mean, at this point in time, do you feel like you're, are you getting through to people? <laughs> is, it, is it working? Because I feel like we're not, right. we're not paying attention to the facts that much. Like, right. does it, is it frustrating for you? I mean, yeah. I mean, look, absolutely. There are occasions on which it is frustrating. I mean, the 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 extent to which Americans broadly are willing to set aside very obvious logical leaps in favor of the rhetoric that they would like to believe is sort of astonishing. I mean, the fact that you know Donald Trump could spend as much time as he did lying about a voter fraud and there's obviously nothing to it. The fact that Dinesh D'Souza could have millions of dollars of, of revenue come in for his terrible and totally idiotic movie, 2000 Mules. You know, these are, these are sort of the exemplars of the type, but yeah, on a daily basis, we get nonsensical claims about data, which are very easily disproven. It's just, but people have little to no interest in having them disproven. You know, this is, it's true very much more on the right. There are instances on the left as well, but it's just, it, it, it can be frustrating, but I really, do feel like 
my role to some extent is simply to be the voice of reason, even if people aren't necessarily listening to it. Right. That's a tough role. I mean, I would be very frustrated by it. I think it's like in the same way I would be bad at uh, being a waiter because I would eventually have to wait on someone like me. You know, I think um, <laughs> trying to convince people over and over again in the, in the particular way that you do, which is like very fact-based, right? Very database, which right. often shouldn't be up for debate is like, yeah, widely and loudly debated. I got into an argument with somebody when I, I was in California and I was at a bar and somebody started talking about, um, you know, COVID vaccines or whatever and that they didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why I decided to enter the conversation. The guy, it was like there were four people at the bar and he was happened to be sitting next to me. And I started talking about the data of, if you look at, you know, death rate of unvaccinated versus vaccinated, very early on, it was pretty clear, like there's a correlation there seems to be a correlation between getting vaccinated and not dying. Yeah. I feel like if I had to do that as a job, I would um, I kind of go crazy. Well, I mean, but part of the problem, honestly, is that I spend a lot of time and energy writing pieces for the Post that explore this stuff, and then I'll tweet about it, and then people will respond to the tweet and not get into any of the actual analysis. And they'll be like, well, what about blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, look, click the link, idiot. You'll see. Like, <laughs> that's accounted. You know, the exception here being that I did this really, the only time I've ever done a Twitter thread is I pulled out a lot of my stuff on 2000 Mules just to be like, you know, to have this benchmark of here are all the reasons 2000 Mules is nonsense. And even then, people wouldn't read further in the thread. They'd respond to like the first one, like, you obviously haven't seen the movie. And so it's just like social media in particular makes this worse. I can imagine being in a bar doesn't necessarily help either. Well, you know, the thing about it is people are less bold in person. That's true. I mean, you know, not to go down a social media rabbit hole or anything. But in fact, I just looked at Twitter for the first time in... um in actually in like kind of several days, I feel like, or at mm -hmm. least I haven't been looking at it very much. And sort of wild what's going on there. It's kind of like, it's, yeah. it's really a strange experience now. But yeah, but I just think people are very bold on social media. I mean, it's classic internet stuff, right? You, you, there's no consequences, really. Like, you can right, right. say anything and do anything, and what are people going to do? They're not going to, you know, there's no, there's no physical barrier, right. right? And in person, people are usually like, you have to consider just, I don't know, what is it? That feeling of being in a room with somebody and making people uncomfortable. Like people don't want to do that a lot of the time, or they don't want to worry that they get somebody angry enough that they get, you know, punched in the face. A, a punch in the face. Exactly. Not sure. Yeah. I'm. The, I would be the one getting punched in the face. Just to be clear, oh, uh, for sure. the record, sure, I, I wouldn't be punching yeah. anybody. But so you've written a book <clears throat> called The Aftermath. Yes. Well, I should say that I have not read the book, and uh, that's on me. Though I have been in Pittsburgh for the last two weeks dealing with some stuff, so I have not had a chance. And we were trying to schedule stuff, and I thought, well, I'm going to read it, or at least skim it, you know, so I, I know what I'm talking about. But, so I will join, <laughs> if there's anybody listening to this who has no idea what the book is about, could you talk about what the book is about? Sure. So the aftermath is, uh, I realized a couple of years ago that we were going through this very tumultuous period in politics and and, and culture in particular, uh, and that we were also going through this transition with the baby boom, that the baby boomers had started going into retirement. And so I, I decided I wanted to look at the extent to which those things might overlap. And, and what I realized as I was researching the book is there was an enormous amount of overlap, that, that there are a lot of characteristics of the baby boom and uh, that the sheer scale of the baby boom, which I I think people tend to underestimate or not recognize really helps define the ways in which American politics and economics and culture are all contributing to or are all are all seeing this same uh, this level of tension between old and young hmm. uh, that manifests in a lot of different other demographic ways. And so the book is an exploration of both what this moment looks like, how it's driven to a large extent by what the baby boom is. 
But then also, what happens after the baby boom is gone, which won't happen for decades. In the subheads, the last days of the baby boom, future power in America. Uh, but it's really an exploration of basically what happens over the next several decades as the baby boom loses its grip on the power that it's held since you know the 1950s. Right. Okay, there's a lot there. Yeah, that's a long book. But let me just, I want to back up and talk about the baby boomers for a second. Define a baby boomer. Sure. You know, if for someone who's listening who maybe does not know, give me the, the kind of stock definition of a baby boomer. Yeah, so the, a baby boomer is someone who was born between 1946 and 1964. And the reason that's important is twofold. The first is that uh, the baby boom is defined by those births. So this is not just a, you know, hey, I'm Gen X because I was born in this general range of years and we, this is what we call us. This is a hard thing that the demographers at the Census Bureau said this is a defined and distinct generation that is identifiable by the surge in births. And so it's actually, you know, we include anyone who's born in 46 through 64, even though demographers actually see the boom starting sort of in the middle of 46 and ending in about the middle of 64. Mm. Uh, so, you know, there's some vagueness there, but the baby boom is a clear event, demographic event that happened with this surge in births. And the, the statistic I like to cite to give some sense of perspective is that there were 140 million Americans in 1945. That was the total population of the country. Over the next 19 years for the baby boom, almost 76 million babies were born, right? So that's more than 50% of the population in 1945 oh. are then born. Okay. And so that means that, you know, a third of the country essentially is 19 or less at the end of the baby right. boom. Right, right. And then you just consider how that reshapes everything moving forward as they get older. And that's the effect the baby booms had on the country. Is there, is there no, you know, this may be a stupid question, but is there no other generation since the baby boomer generation that has a comparative sort of birth rate? I mean, is it just unmatched? Like who's after the baby boomers? It's, is it Gen X? X. Right. That's, that's right. Yeah. That's me. That's me. The greatest generation, in my opinion. Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> Which is another generation, but I think we should just take it. Honestly, I think we're, we're yeah. owed it at this point. <laughs> and Gen X birth rate, like comparatively, do you know the number offhand? Like how many babies were born? You said 77 million from 46 to 64. Is that right? Almost 76. Okay. Yeah, almost 76 million. 76 million. So, so do we start at 65? Gen X starts at 65. That's and it. And goes to what? It goes to 80. 80. So how many babies were born? But, 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 no, but this is key. According to Pew Research Center, which is the, the go-to for the delineations of generations. Right. But it's made up. You know, I mean, it is, this is not a demographically distinct event to your question. So we're answering your question in two right. ways. No, there was not a similar, like, defined period of births that tells us what Gen X was. Right. Uh, it was just sort of like, well, this makes sense as a truncation point that Pew decided. Same with millennials. Millennials, okay, let's have start 81 and then go to, I think it's like 95, something along those lines. Right. But again, not a hard demarcation. The generation that is next closest in size, total population to the boom, is the millennial generation, which at the age of 40, there are about, you know, nine for every 10 boomers at the age of 40. There's about 90% the total number that boomers were when they hit 40. And so it's almost as big. And millennials are the children of boomers. Is that correct? Well, I mean, look. You know, there were boomers that were the children of boomers, right? right? If you were 18 right. born 46 <laughs> and had a kid, you know. That's crazy. So, the, you know, again, this is all made up. Right, sure. But it, what's interesting is you're kind of hammering on this point. The baby boomer generation where Gen X or Gen Y or whatever, Gen Z, millennials may be a kind of a marketing or just a way to categorize a group of people from a cer at a certain period mm -hmm. certainly is used in marketing, obviously. That's it. And, and some of it is fueled by marketing. But right. you're saying that, that one of the characteristics of baby boomers that is distinct is that there is an actual demographic event that occurs in that era that is different from That's right. what we would consider to be previous generations, that there is a huge uptick in births. That's right. That we 
have populated America full of these people in a way that no other generation, I guess you're saying millennial, but it's interesting to consider that millennials are the future boomers, which kind of checks out to me in a way. But um, so so there's a real defining characteristic of it that isn't just like a marketing term. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's almost as if the analogy like uses to astrology, but it's as though you there was evidence that people who were born under the star sign of cancer actually had a certain set of attributes and that you could define that, you know, cancers had this set of attributes. And then he just made up the rest of the Zodiac in order to sort of flesh it out and have something to dispute. Right. Right. So generations are very much like the Zodiac in that, you know, they have these sort of theoretical attributes that everyone shares and they have sort of vaguely defined boundaries and you can be on the cusp and what does that mean? Like, you know, there are a lot of parallels there, but there is this real thing, you know, that, that, that the baby boom itself is actually real. Right. And so as a result, you've got a bunch of people who appear on the planet at a certain time. Right. You said it's an 18 year period, right? It's 19 years inclusive. Yeah. Raised in a certain environment, raised in a certain way in a certain state of America that has had, you know, massive impact on the, political and cultural landscape that we currently navigate. Is that correct in saying that? Well, it's it's understating, right? The baby boom forced, a, I mean, you know, I'm mean, not to be melodramatic, but <laughs> you're like, no, that's actually totally wrong. <laughs> but the baby boom really reshaped what America looks like. You know, there were external factors, the development of television, transistor radios, you know, geopolitical affairs, those things had an effect as well. But when you consider what it means to have to accommodate this massive surge in population, you understand how America had to reshape itself, right? Like imagine, you know, in the, in the mid 1950s, you have to get not only a bunch of new elementary schools to accommodate everyone, you have to get a bunch of elementary school teachers. Right. By the time they hit 18, like what jobs are they going to do? Are they going to go to college? Who are the college professors? You can't just whip up college professors, right? You send a, you send a decent chunk of them off to Vietnam, right? right. Either you give them to give them the right to vote. There are all these ways in which America changed because it had to deal with this. And this is the key point. Now we're reaching the point where they're all hitting 65. Somehow a lot of us are sort of blindsided, like, oh my God, all of a sudden there's all these seniors. It's like, yeah, man, we've seen this coming since 1946. Right. Like we now we now we have to figure out what we're gonna do. Right. Uh when you put it in these terms, it's like shockingly obvious that this is a problem. Like that, of course, this huge disparity in certain sort of expectations or politics or cultural norms or whatever, of course, like it makes a lot of sense given what you were just saying, but people talk about boomers and it's a very broad term to mean like a person who's like uncool and has bad ideas and is selfish. There's more to it than that. I'm sure. Can you, can you like just hit a couple of the points of like, what is the (laughs) defining boomer characteristic? Yeah. Okay. So you asked a couple of questions there. I mean, to your last point about, you know, what is, what is a boomer? That's sort of the astrology aspect of it, right? You know, like who, who they are sort of conscientiously is, is, you know, I think there, there's an answerable component to that, which, which I'll get to, but you also asked, you know, what are the ways they reshaped America? The the answer to that is simple. I, I think nearly everything in America was reshaped by the baby boom. And, you know, that's part of what the book goes into. What differentiates a boomer from someone else? And this has, has a very clear and I think important answer. You're, you're absolutely right. This is a very, very large generation of tens of millions of people. So it is certainly by, you know, by no means are they, are they all the same, but they are, they do share some characteristics. One is that they are much whiter than younger Americans. And you have to consider that it, about a century ago, the United States imposed new restrictions on immigration, partly as a backlash to immigrants from Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, mm. also immigrants from Asia. Those weren't lifted until after the boom ended. So at the time of the baby boom, time baby boom started, 
the average immigrant was someone's grandparent who'd come over through the Ellis Island era of immigration, right? right? Then when immigration laws were loosened, we saw a lot of immigrants from Asia and Central America and Mexico who helped to diversify the United States. And so we have a younger generation in America that is much less densely white than the baby boom generation. Right. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, you're saying like we basically hit pause on like a more diverse form of immigration like during this period. That's exactly right. I mean, that's, that alone is just a kind of fascinating, you know, I mean, uh, maybe if I had read more history books, that would be obvious to me, but that is not obvious as a component of like sure, no. the boomer generation. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I find that kind of fascinating. Yeah, but I mean, you can immediately understand how that overlaps with lots of different strains of American politics, right? <laughs> you know, when you have this older, whiter generation that all of a sudden is very frustrated and when they look at younger Americans and they literally look different than they do, that sort of freaks them out. Like you can see, again, not to over simply. You can see how, how this plays out. Uh, but there are other things, too. And so the boomers started this trend, for example, of moving away from uh, uh, belonging to institutions. Uh, you know, they're less likely to go to church than their parents. They're less likely to participate in social groups and so on and so forth. But that's really accelerated post-boom. And so younger Americans are much less likely to participate in institutions, much less likely to be members of political parties, uh, much less likely to be, uh, go to church, much less likely to be religious. Uh, at the same time, they're also much better educated. So boomers are, went to college more than their parents, but that trend also continued. So younger people are much better educated. And so for anyone who's paid attention to politics, again, you can see how these things overlap with Democratic and Republican uh, orientation, right? right? You know, people who don't go to church and have our college graduates and are people of color are much more likely to be Democrats, mm. right? And so that then also contributes to the tension. So, so there are a lot of practical ways in which boomers and young Americans are different that then you can very quickly see how it trickles out. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. 
<laughs> so buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. Oracle.com slash strategic. I mean, this is maybe a really stupid question, but do Republicans skew mm-hmm. older than Democrats across the board? Yeah, they do. I actually okay. looked at analysis for the Post. That's, this is included to some extent in the book, but I pulled more recent numbers. You know, about a third of the Republican Party, registered Republicans, not including independents who lean Republican, registered Republicans nationally, about a third of them are 65 or over. You know, well over half of them are 50 or over. Wow. Right? That's not great for the Republicans. <laughs> it's not. But, they, you know, this is this is like two chapters of the book. And so what does this mean? Right? right. Like, but what does this mean over the long Oh, I was going to get to that. Like, it's, you know, you predict the future. But in essence, you're saying that like boomers are actually, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, more progressive because they're more educated. I guess I, I guess I don't understand the distinction because you said they're more educated and that trend has continued. But that would mean right. that like boomers are by and large Democrats. Is that correct? No, no. What I'm saying is when you look at the density of college education over time, the boomers really started the upward trend. Right. But then once the boom was done, it continued to shoot higher and higher. I see. So most boomers do not have a college education. Most young people don't have college education, too, but they're right. much more likely to have a college education than that. that over I see. That accelerated as the generation wore on, essentially, right, right? And continued on that track. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Okay. Let's hear some other baby boomer facts. This is like fascinating to me. So they are. So they are very white. I think uh-huh. we just stopped on very white. That was <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting about it, though, is because immigration laws were loosened, they actually got less white over time. The baby boom generation kept growing in size until about the year 2000 because of immigration, even though, you know, birth ended in 1964 because right. we kept bringing people in who were born in 40 from 46 to 64. They weren't part of the American baby boom, but were part of other countries births over that period. Right, of time. right. The right. boom itself actually got less white over time, which I think is also sort of fascinating. Right. That is interesting. So you're saying with a less limited immigration policy, there's an influx of non-white boomer age people. Yeah, exactly. Someone moved here from China who was born in 1960. They're right. a baby boom, right? Right. So, yeah. But not not our baby boom. <laughs> a totally, right. A totally right. different, distinct one, I'm sure. Um, right. All right. What else should we know? What are some other signs to watch out for if you, know, if you want to know your baby boomer? <laughs> Well, I mean, look, you know, again, drawing these sorts of distinctions is tricky just because this is not a generation which is cohesively the same in, in a lot of different ways. Right. You know? They're not a monolith. But if we reshaped America around their needs and wants and likes and dislikes and whatever the kinds of challenges we were presented with because of this new uh, group of people that has appeared on the on the planet in this country, presumably there are some connective elements uh, amongst that group that I mean, they may not just be like, oh, they prefer to eat, you know, hamburgers or whatever, you know, like I'm talking, there's got to be more, you know, sort of demographically speaking. I mean, what you're talking about is, is a fact. 
Yeah, well, I mean, from a demographic standpoint, there's not a lot of other things, right? I mean, younger people more likely to live in cities, but not overwhelmingly so. And, you know, there's a chapter in the book that looks at this. But when we talk about the things that define them, right? So demographers look not necessarily generations, but cohorts, people who are are born in the same general time period and live through similar experiences. And so when you look at, for example, people who are young during the Great Depression, they have a certain relationship to money that other Americans probably don't, right? So, So we understand that idea of how cohorts go. But when we talk about what are the defining characteristics of the cohort of the baby boomers it's every goddamn movie you've seen in the past 30 years right you know it's kids who listen to rock and roll and you know i mean it's like it's like all of these stereotypes are born of young baby boomers who all of a sudden marketers have this massive opportunity because they have this huge influx of teenagers who have a ton of disposable income and start driving decisions the family's making. You have this emerge at the same time as television. They're buying stuff they see on television. So marketers are pitching to them. You have, you know, you have Dick Clark's American Bands. They're like all these things right. <laughs> that we now associate right. with the very right. stereotypical that's the baby boom. Man. Well, it's interesting that so much of Americana or mm-hmm. a nostalgia about the way America used to be that we hear now, particularly from people like Trump and, you know, Republicans often, not just them, but right. it's funny when you said it's, they were very white, like the first thought I had was like, oh, well, that kind of explains why a lot of these older Americans perfect idea of like what America should be like is this like very white suburban sort of place right like this classic like where they were on top they were sort of like in the pole position all the time and they lived in these very like homogenous sort of environments that were that looked and felt very similar like i feel like the immigration thing explains it better than any anything i could imagine as to why their nostalgia is so seemingly one-sided or at least a lot of people not not again not across the board but you do hear it a lot so we've got this huge generation again not monolithic in their behaviors or their attitudes but there is some some stuff that that has carried through i mean is there a moment where with their politics or their way of living or their thinking begins to truly clash with like their children or the generations that are following them i mean it's, it's it explain that to me yeah no this is this is a, a great question and Again, this is a, a generation that lasts over the course of 19 years. And so it itself is divisible you know, in some ways in terms of when things start to happen. We've had baby boomers hitting retirement age for some time now, for example. But consider in the moment, consider, you know, the, the State of the Union address is a, is a really good example of the ways in which this manifests. And so for a long time, the Republican Party is like, we got to cut entitlements, we got to cut Social Security and Medicare. We just talked about how Republicans are now much older uh, than Democrats and are older than they used to be because America is older. And so all of a sudden, President Biden gets up to the State of the Union and says, hey, you know, the Republicans want to cut Social Security and Medicare. And the Republicans are like, oh, my God, no, 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 we don't want to do that, right. which is not the position they would have had previously, in part because their base is so much older, right? right. But when you think about the Gen X did not push back on the baby boom a lot, in part because we weren't, there weren't as many of us. And so we weren't able to sort of own culture in in, in the same way that younger, you know, millennials and Gen Z are able to do so. Well, we, we own culture, just the cool parts that not a, not a lot of people are interacting with. Yeah, I mean, sort of what just, just comes with being young, right? Yeah. You know, you know, not much beyond that. I mean, you know, we, we got our little blurp of the, you know, the hip hop Super Bowl halftime show last year, which is about all we're going to get. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think of it as a generation that doesn't care about whether or not their culture is necessarily the most <laughs> right. popular culture. I think a defining characteristic of Gen X is they kind of don't care about being like the top dog. 
you know. Well, you should then write a book about generations and see how many Gen well, Xers complain about not getting mentioned in every freaking interview. Maybe so. I will. <laughs> and so, but then consider the fact that we, now we have this group of millennials and Gen Z people who, again, are almost as numerous as baby boomers when they were young, and now more numerous than baby boomers, who have a very different set of needs than the baby boomers. And right. So we have this increased senior population now, so we need to think about Social Security, and we need to think about Medicare. We need to think about senior housing. We need to think about long-term health precautions of that. But you also have this competing large group of people increasingly voting who are saying, actually, we also need to invest in schools and pre-K and things along those lines. We know that historically that that older Americans are less likely to support things like school bond measures because they're less likely to have kids in schools. Hmm. So this sets up a political tension by itself just in terms of where federal, state, and local resources are going. This is the moment when that's happening because now older Americans need those and now younger Americans also need to take care of their own families at an increasing rate. Right. So we're battling over resources. This is sort of like a water world situation. Well, that's, I mean, that's one aspect of it. Right. Right. Do boomers get a bad rap? Like the word boomer has become associated with something very negative. I said this earlier. Yeah. yeah. Is that a false representation? I mean, the things you're describing are, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're constantly being pulled backwards in this country, especially politically. Mm. I mean, it's not like every boomer is a, is a Republican or something, but it does feel like there's a very conservative, element in this country, whether it is, you know, conservative Republican or just somebody who is older and more conservative in their thinking, that we make a lot of progress, then it somehow gets like kind of, there's always this group trying to pull us back. Is that the boomers? Is that our current, you know, sort of the ghoul they've been depicted as, you know, that is sort of like, you know, trying to rip us back to a simpler time as they would describe it? Uh, or is that a misrepresentation? I mean, this is this is complicated. And there, there are a lot of different aspects to it. So, so one aspect is that we certainly do have older people tend to vote more than younger people. And a result of that is that the issues that are of concern to older people tend to get overrepresented in politics. Uh, and that while boomers are themselves not robustly more Republican than Democrat, uh, that they are much more Republican than our younger generations. And so that if boomers themselves collectively just made a decision, they would still be more heavily Republican than what younger people would do just because they're more Republican. But I do think the boomers get a bad rap in the sense that, for example, baby boom controls, you know, a, a disproportionate share of the wealth in the United States. But in part, that's because there are so many of them. And when you look at a per capita basis, the per capita baby boomers are no wealthier than any other generation. And I think that when we talk about the ways in which resentment manifests between generations, one of the challenges is not only do younger people feel like, oh, baby boomers, they all got to buy houses and, you know, they're all so wealthy. Look how wealthy they are as a generation. The baby boomers individually are like, I'm not wealthy. What are you talking about? Like, right. you know, why, why are you mad at me? I didn't do anything. You know, like, yes, I own a house, but it's not worth that much and yada, yada, yada. Right. So you see some of that resentment. Right. <laughs> but you also see, for example, that young people can get in the face of old people in a way that wasn't possible 50 years ago, right? And I think this is under-recognized. Like, you know, in 1970, when young people wanted to cause a ruckus, they'd go on college campus and carry signs and hopefully get coverage in the San Francisco Chronicle or whatever it happened to be. Now they get on TikTok. You know, there's a quote that I used in the book from a guy who's talking to Harper's and he's like, look, you know, you can be in your bedroom in Cleveland, get a million followers overnight. And you can. And you can get those million followers can be the, you know, glomming onto your song, OK Boomer, and getting mad at the boomers and making fun of them. Right. And the boomers have to deal with that and see that in a way that was not the case previously. Yeah. And, you know, and that also increases generational tension. So there are all these ways in which this manifests that aren't specifically about the struggle for power, but still do reflect, you know, the elevated state of tension between the generations. Right. Well, but to be fair on the point about TikTok, not just boomers that are worrying about or have to deal with the sort of instantaneous popularity of, you know, hate being tossed at a certain group or whatever. I mean, it's it's sort of 
I mean, this is sort of a, a daily habit now, right? That we have to uh, navigate some new, you know, movement of people, right or wrong, good or bad, that has kind of allied themselves against a group, some other group or some other person or whatever. I think, I mean, yes, boomers get shit for it, but, you know, millennials get shit for it too on TikTok, you know? So sure. I think it's it's sort of evenly, somewhat even, well, maybe not evenly distributed, but. Yeah, but again, the baby boom is used to wielding power. Right. Not necessarily consciously, but they're used to being the most important element of American society. You know, you and I are very used to online abuse. Right? We like, we understand that world, you know? Yes, <laughs> yeah. of course. It's, it's what makes our jobs fun. Big fan. There's a great story in Vanity Fair today that was looking actually at the generation in the NBA and how older NBA players wanted to say, oh, this, you know, these young guys are terrible because X, Y, and Z in a way that, you know, you and I grew up watching sports and, you know, hearing commentators say things like that. But the young people are then going out, the younger NBA players are like, no, the heck with this guy. Here's why, blah, 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 and, and pushing back. And it really is this microcosm that, that of, of the way in which they are not used to this. They held power in the NBA, they're, and they're not used to having that be challenged in a way that is so immediate to fans, right? right? And, I, and I think that's a good microcosm of, of the effect that I'm talking about. So that element is more like these are people who aren't used to being questioned when they right. when they are wielding their power or whatever, right? That's it. Yep. I can see how that can manifest in all sorts of ways in this country, uh, and and does manifest in 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 kind of bad situations. Okay, so obviously boomers very important to the current fabric of America. Sure. A very misunderstood generation. Not all bad. That's what I'm hearing. You know, we all probably know some boomers that we love, no question. Um, you know, we should be welcoming them and trying to understand them, right? We shouldn't be making them outcasts. But what do we do? How do we fix this? Is there a fix to it? Is we, we got people just have to die? Is that the answer to all of our, our current woes? Mm -hmm. When the boomers are dying off, like, do we know what's going to replace it? Do, are we going to be plunged into chaos, like without a shared enemy? I mean, what happens? You have to, you have to predict <laughs> the future. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the, the second half of the, you know, the book's called The Aftermath, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I do spend some time trying to figure out what this looks like. You know, I, I try and do so with humility. And, you know, I, I recognize that a lot of people have made a lot of predictions in the past that are wrong. But uh, what I try to do is I try to look at three things. I try to look at culture, economics, and politics and estimate as the baby boom power wanes what happens. And my determination was the, the, the baby boom has much less cultural power. Now, they're not the dominant cultural force in part because culture tends to be the domain of youth and in part simply because you know, th these things change over time, you know, the cultural customs uh, tend to change. Uh, economically, you know, there's this real question, what happens that the, some people with whom I spoke estimate that, you know, last year, $2 trillion worth of wealth was transferred out of the baby boom generation to other places, mm. in part to institutions, in part through bequeathments to family members, and in part through, you know, just paying for things like buying a kid a house or paying for a kid's college, things along those lines. Right. But, you know, they estimate more than $50 trillion for the course of the next two decades. Where does that go? You know, the answer that I got mostly from folks was probably to people who are already wealthy in their families. <laughs> so generational wealth, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Right. right. You know, but that also depends on how long boomers live and how much how much they have medical costs and whether they're able to afford to your housing. And then a lot of the determinations that are being made now. Right. Um, when we talk about political power, you know, the immediate question a lot of people have is, OK, if America's more diverse uh, as, you know, among younger generations, they tend to vote more heavily Democratic. Does that mean, you know, we're in for an uber Democratic future? And the answer to that I have to show the complexity is that when you look at the Census Bureau's projections for what the demography of the United States is going to look like in 2060, you break it out by age and by race, the state in the union that looks the most like what the Census Bureau thinks you know, the United States will look like on the whole in 2060, the state that currently looks like that is Florida. Mm. The state of Florida is not uber-democratic. No, right? that's not good. How is that possible? 
Why is it Florida? <laughs> here's here's why it's Florida. It's Florida because Florida is very old, and Florida has a large Hispanic population. Yeah, right? okay. But consider the qualifiers. Florida's old population is very heavily white and more conservative than old population elsewhere. That's not going to be the case in 2060 because the old population is going to get more diverse as America ages. Right. And second of all, Florida's Hispanic population is very heavily Cuban-American, which is a more conservative group of Hispanic voters. Right. And so that probably doesn't reflect what Hispanic voters will look like in the future either. Right. So there are caveats. But again, the point is the complexity here. What's and number two? Do you know what number two? Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but Florida's number one. What is number two? Of course I do, Joshua. The state of New Jersey, which is a very blue state. I mean, that's interesting. Right. That's slightly, I mean, again, again, I'm sorry. It is kind of shocking to me that you're telling me like when they look at what defines America and in a, in a way, maybe it all makes sense. Hmm. But when you're saying number one and number two, it's what will define America potentially, what America will look more like in the future is number one, Florida, mm-hmm. and number two, New Jersey, yeah. two states that are often, often considered to be two of the worst places in America. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that, <laughs> but it is a, spoken like a New York. But it is, no, no, I'm not saying I agree with it. You know, there's wonderful parts of Jersey, wonderful parts of Florida, sure. but but it, they are like a often like the joke, you know, the end of a joke for a lot of people, you know, Florida man is a thing because there's, it seems like, you know, every day there's some absolutely outrageous story about a guy who went crazy in Florida Uh, and Jersey, you know, we don't have a whole nother hour to talk about all the, but you know, these are cliches, but it is interesting. Okay. What's number three. Do you know? I'm just curious. I got to know. I don't know off the top of my head. Unfortunately. Let's say it's like Delaware or something, maybe a little more. No, it's definitely not Delaware. Delaware is too white. (laughs) Okay. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store, clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. 
Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O.com. Nine of the top 10 states that look the most like what the Census Bureau projects the demography to look like are blue states, or Biden voting oh, states, they are. right? Okay. Which doesn't surprise us yet, right? Yeah. But the Census Bureau's projections, just to, you know, and this is another chapter in the book, the Census Bureau's projections are based on an assumption that Hispanic Americans will continue to identify as Hispanic. And there are all sorts of caveats to that, all sorts of caveats to the way in which we measure diversity now, the way in which we expect diversity to unfold over the long term, which may change that and, and may mean that we actually have a more conservative America than, than people expect. I mean, isn't that, in a way, the assumption that that an older generation of any voter will act mm. like a younger generation? is sort of Because that, I guess, what would be considered more blue, right? The Hispanic population, if it's more blue today, a younger mm. probably, I mean, I don't know how it skews, but I have to imagine it's got to be, maybe, is it not younger? I don't know. But it as it gets older... I mean, isn't there just, there's an opportunity there for that older generation to become more conservative as older people seem to do? Like, because you're like, hey, I don't want people to get the thing that that's supposed to be mine or I don't, you know, I don't want to be paying taxes for these new people who just showed up or whatever right. the, whatever the, I don't know. I can't put my mind in the, in the, the space to really understand the complaints, but sure. right. Like there's no guarantee that a person who is today a Democrat and young and not like worried about the same things would be 60 years old and feel the same way. Well, you get at a few things there. And one is that, A, the parties themselves are fungible, right? Like the Republican Party in 20 years' time doesn't have to have the same values and, and principles that the Republican Party today does. And in fact, I, in think, it, I think it will, though. I think it will. Well, I mean, I, I, if it does, then it's going to get, you know, 20% vote share, I think. Great. I mean, that sounds good. Virtue. Okay. So the other thing is that, yeah, I mean, when we talk about this idea that people get more conservative as they age, you know, that's based on, we don't really have a great, long, lengthy history of social science research, right? right. You, you know, it goes back to, you know, not even a century in terms of polling, it goes less than that in terms of like solid scientific research on sociological trends and things along those lines. Right. So even if we assume that's true, though, which I don't know that we have a sufficient enough sample size to say it is, even if we assume that's true, we're basing it on a very white population of Americans, right? Older right. black Americans today, they, they're not more conservative, right? Older Hispanic Americans today still vote heavily Democratic. Right, right. Is there a reason to think that those populations that are non-white yeah. are going to get more Republican? I don't know that there is. Well, actually, I mean, just going back to that point about the future of the Republican Party, I mean, if anything, in, in my adult life, I have seen the Republican Party become less progressive. It was not normal when I was younger for people who were identified as Republican to be like kind of outspoken full-on racists or Nazis or like aligning themselves with like, you know, white supremacy. That's a pretty common thing in the Republican Party from what I can tell now. A lot of it may be broad trudged up because of Trump. But like, I mean, I remember when Obama was was running, you know, the first time around and it was like there was sort of unabashed like, oh, 
oh, people are bringing like, you know, monkeys to rallies, mm-hmm. you know, to make fun of him and just like really weird racist shit that I'd never seen happen in America in politics, not to that degree that was just kind of out, just people couldn't help themselves. It was like very outspoken. To me, I've seen the Republican Party seemingly go further into some kind of weird you know, race-based sort of conservative standpoint. Like, so explain that to me because it. See, based on what you're saying, like, kind of like the, the the thing with with Medicare, they're like, no, we don't want that. We want to be right. whatever the boomers are asking for. But, but I don't know that. I mean, again, you said it was a very white generation, but I see a Republican Party that moves further and further to an extreme right position, which feels incompatible with. What you're to what you're saying, the demographics of the country as they as they are evolving. Am, am I am I mistaken in, in reading it that way? No, you're not mistaken. What what you're doing though is you're you're restating the thesis of the book, right? Which is that what happens in 2008 is Barack Obama is elected, and at the same time you start to see this extremely sharp divide between older and younger Americans and how they vote. You have a new cadre of more diverse younger Americans coming out to vote for a candidate who excites them, who isn't John Kerry, who isn't Al Gore in 2000, and they they left Barack Obama. And then you have a reaction to that, which is a lot of people, older people, joining this Tea Party movement thing, which is heavily predicated on giving government funding to non-white Americans on a perception of immigration as this toxic thing. But also, if you speak to people who study this thing, concerned by older Americans about their younger family members who are under the sway of this socialist who's not even white. Right. right. This is a moment in which all of this becomes very potent. Then you layer on top of that, the Census Bureau first making its projection of, oh, by the way, in the next couple of decades, whites are going to be a minority in the country and everyone freaks out. And right. that's the moment. This is why we're seeing this now. You're right. It, it predates Trump. Trump leveraged it very successfully. Right. He leveraged BLM in 2014, the immigration surge in 2014 for his 2015 launch of 2016 campaign. But it predates him and it centers around an older, whiter America suddenly coming to terms with they're losing their grip on power with the election of Barack Obama. Right. I have long felt that, and I'm sure many have expressed this, that Trump's rise to power as the voice of the Republican Party is like the the death rattle of this generational thinking or this party the way it has been. Like, my hope was that like this was like close to the final, most toxic, most sort of uh, deranged element kind of trying to get its last gasp after they've experienced the Obama years and had to think about an America where we could have a black president and then some like, you know, but it doesn't feel like that was a temporary death rattle. It feels like it was a more permanent, like realigning of, I don't know, like a set of values. Like I understand holding on to the things that they feel like were the way they were and that they want them to stay like, but it's unclear to me how a political party in this country can navigate from that position and we don't just end up in essentially like some kind of civil war, a race-based sort of war here. Because like, what's the logical end of that? I mean, not to be overly dramatic, but it feels like, what is it? We just wait for that generation to die out and hope that we don't mint too many new people like that. Is that basically the, the solution? So there, I'll start by saying there are four things that I identified as unknowns that that you know could certainly change the shape. Climate change is one of them. You know how long people live is another. With the extent to which Hispanics continue to identify as Hispanic is the third. And the fourth is does America survive as a pluralist democracy? And you're right, that is very much up in the air. It's not clear. I mean, I think 2022 was a good step in that direction. But you know, right. you know, every time I spoke with uh, political science, they'd be like, well, assuming America survives as it is, then X. And I spoke right. with people who were very much like. You know, I mean, look, 
democracy, true pluralistic democracy in the United States began in the 1960s, began at the end of the baby boom, right? right. You know, one of the fascinating things that I noted in the book, which is sort of tangential here, is that, you know, this this whole reaction to, like, schools being named after Confederate leaders after Brown versus Board of Education, the reason there are so many schools to name was because the baby boom made them have to build all these schools. And so you see this entrenchment of a very particular style of American politics right at the moment the boom is onset and right when all of a sudden you start to see blacks get more power. So, yes, that's very much a question mark. I do think it's important to note three things. The first is that in 2012, the Republican Party said, look, we either need to become pluralistic or we need to, like, you know, figure out what we're going to do. And Donald Trump was like, you know, we're going to just, you know, triple down on appealing to the white vote. Then what happens is he wins in 16 by the skin of his teeth. He loses in 20. And then the party gets demolished in 2022. It doesn't get demolished. It does. It underperforms in 2022. Didn't do well. Didn't do great. Well, yeah. What's the party's first reaction? Ronald McDaniel says, you know, what we need to do is reach out to a more diverse group of voters, which they do need to do. And the party recognizes that. Right. Will they do it over the short term? I don't know. But I think they internally recognize that's something they have to do. The second thing is that the issues on which younger Americans are more concerned, the Republican Party actually has moved left, not on race based stuff necessarily, but on LGBTQ issues on things like climate change, the Republican Party is not as stringent as it was 15, 20 years ago. 20, you know, 2004, the party put all these anti-same-sex marriage ballot measures to try and boost George Bush's re-election. Right. Right. Nowadays, the party ostensibly and often, you know, basically the subset of the party, which is fervently anti-same-sex marriage, yeah. is, is, is a minority. That is a change, and that overlaps with a thing that is very central to younger voters. So it is already making changes to be different to this group of voters than it used to be. Right. I mean, it's fascinating to think about a future state of the Republican Party that actually embraces that stuff. Because I feel like, yes, on the surface, that is feels like it's true that there's been a loosening of sort of the um, mm-hmm. conservative viewpoint on things like the LGBTQ plus community. But at the same time, I feel like deep down, they definitely would vote against anything that helps out that community, right? They're right. not and really- you still had Proud Boys at January 6th, sure. Yeah. Right, exactly. Right. And, and, and the leader of their party is absolutely not aligning around. I mean, I guess in a way, maybe Trump is more progressive on that front than, than, yeah. uh, than some, of, some of the other potential candidates because mm-hmm. uh, he at least like kind of acknowledges the existence of, of those people where I think a lot of Republicans for a long time did not. But right. unfortunately, we don't have enough time. I want to keep going because there's I'm so fascinated by this, but I got to say like the, the these sort of big questions that you're you're opposing about like the future of America are absolutely fascinating. I'm dying now, dying to read the book because you know I, I like the setup, but now hearing you actually dig into it is just to me it's just it sounds like such a fertile and frankly confusing moment in our history. I mean, to your point about people saying, well, maybe we don't continue to be you know this democracy that we've enjoyed. I know that it's talked about a lot, but what's interesting is, I mean, and of course this is your forte presenting like data against the possibility of it and understanding the demographics that could drive something like that makes it feel a lot more real. And so that's just scary and fascinating to me. Philip, thank you so much for coming on and doing this. The book is The Aftermath. What is the subtitle of the book? The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Yes, that sounds very dramatic. I know I was being dramatic during this, but... Gotta sell books, man. You know, absolutely fantastic conversation. You gotta come back and, uh, and do this again soon. Of course, I'd be happy to. Thanks, man. Thank you. Well, that was a fascinating conversation. I feel like I learned a lot and yet have so many more questions. Uh, We're going to have to have Philip back, especially with 2024 being just around the corner, which sounds crazy. That sounds wrong, but 
With every passing day, we're getting closer and closer to a presidential election in this country, which sounds very frightening and upsetting to me personally, but love to find out what a boomer thinks about it. Love to get in there and just chat with them. Maybe I will. So yeah, got to get Philip back to discuss the Floridification of America. Well, that is our show for this week. We'll be back next week, finally, thankfully, with more What Future. And as always, I wish you and your family the very best. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.